Good evening, everybody. It is so, so good to be here with you, to see your faces in person. It has been 64 weeks since we've done this. 64 weeks since we've worshipped together indoors, in person. 64 weeks. In that time, so much has happened. Certainly, as a country, we've been through great change. We've been through great fear, great loss, and great grief. We felt all of that stuff as a church community, too. In the last year and three months, folks have moved away from revolution. We have also lost and grieved in the past year. We have been afraid. In a word, I think it's fair to say that we've suffered. And now, tonight, we're here. We're here once again together. Much has changed, but we're here. Tonight, we're continuing in the fifth week of a series on the letter of 1 Peter in the New Testament of the Bible, a series that we've called Nomads because of the situation that the author, who's the former disciple of Jesus, Peter, the situation the author is addressing. Peter's writing to this second wave of churches in the middle of the first century, which have sprung up not in Jerusalem, but in Gentile or non-Jewish communities to the north in Asia Minor. Those communities have been convinced of the truth of Christianity by missionaries and by tradesmen who brought the good news to them in the years following Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But their experiences as Christians have been marked by difficulty. They've been kicked out of their homes. They've been fired from their jobs. They've been mocked. They've been arrested in the streets. And In the midst of all this, they don't have the ancient connections to Judaism, which can, in some of their communities to the south, some Christians' communities to the south, those connections can bring at least a partial sense of belonging. The people that Peter's writing to have suffered, and Peter writes to them to try and help them discover this identity, this new identity as a people set apart, as nomads who even when they are enduring the hardships they've been enduring, have this opportunity to change the world, not with legal defenses of themselves or their faith or with personal arguments, but with the overwhelming power of radical and generous love. If Jesus' love is made most clear in his own suffering, Peter's letter says, Perhaps their own suffering has an opportunity to make love clear to others as well. Which is to say that they have suffered and they can love. We have suffered. Can we still love? What makes this so hard? I grew up in a rural Southern Baptist church in the 1990s, which is to say that I grew up in the age and in the place of Christian purity culture. Some of you might remember this and carry trauma from it, but if it's a new term for you, Christian purity culture refers to a movement in non-mainline churches in the 1990s which fixated on training children and teenagers to preserve their purity on their way to adulthood. This was most often a way of talking about abstaining from sex before marriage. There was this program called 
true love waits, in which teenagers would take a vow to save themselves from marriage and then symbolize that vow by wearing a wedding ring on their right hand. I had one of those rings. And of course, since I wasn't just a Christian in the 1990s, but as I just said, I was a Baptist, things went further than just avoiding sex for, for me, for us. We didn't drink, we didn't smoke, we didn't gamble. And although it wasn't a hard and fast rule, we also generally didn't dance either. All that to say that when I was young, being a Christian didn't seem to be about doing the right things. It seemed to be a lot more about not doing the wrong things. Now, I want to clarify before I go any further that I don't think this is all bad. 14-year-olds shouldn't be drinking or gambling or having sex, whether they're Christians or not. All of that is unhealthy, and I'm glad that I grew up learning that I could stay away from, from those things. But when you tie the idea of purity to avoiding mistakes, and then you connect all of that to this idea of saving yourself, you're not really talking about the gospel of Christianity anymore. You're also creating a devastating situation for anybody who messes up, anybody who loses their purity, right? What are they worth if they're not still pure? What do they have that anybody would want? I grew up feeling that way sometimes, and even more, in the midst of that culture, I grew up endlessly angry and jealous of my friends who weren't following the same rules that I was following, who seemed to be having all the fun, while my religion meant that I was always, I was always on the outside of all that. Now, I bring all this up. Because as we talk about the radical love of Jesus and how that love answers the hardship of suffering, there are these three big worries which can get in the way of what Peter is trying to teach the early church. Three big worries. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the first of those worries, those worries that can get in the way of the church being what it is called to be, is this one. What if I'm suffering and suffering doesn't actually work? What if I'm suffering and my suffering doesn't work? In the context of Peter's readers, what if losing my job and losing my family and losing my sense of belonging in my community, all for this new religion that I'm following, what if all of that doesn't even matter? In my own context, from my childhood, what if nobody ever notices all the stuff that I'm saying no to? What if turning the other cheek just means that I get slapped in the face twice instead of just once? What if it doesn't work? And to that worry, Peter says this in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. He writes, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this 
with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. There there are a few parts that I've highlighted here in the program that you've got uh, to steer our discussion. But what I think Peter is getting at is this. Peter is saying that living differently because of your faith will lead to hardship. He's been clear about that. It will lead to questions from those who don't understand you. But it only might prompt some kind of change in them. It only might prompt change. He says, those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed, which means, of course, that it's entirely possible they won't be ashamed, right? Which is to say that what you're doing might not make any difference in the end. It might not work in that sense. But then again, your reason for living differently cannot be the impact that you're going to have in the world. I, I'm going to say that again for the, for the folks in the back. I think it's so important. So hear me. Your reason for living differently cannot be the impact that you are going to have in the world. It cannot be the heroic stand you're going to take. It cannot be that shiny gold ring on your right finger setting you apart as pure compared to all of your friends. Your reason for living differently must come from your heart and your conscience. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, Peter says. Keep a clear conscience, he says. Your motivation, in other words, is a right response to experiencing the forgiveness and overwhelming sacrificial love of Jesus. Your motivation must be his love. Because he has loved us, we love. Because he has forgiven us, we flee from sin. The danger, the biggest danger of purity culture is that it assumes that we are righteous to begin with. And our job is to keep from losing that righteousness. But the gospel that we believe in is built on something totally different. It's built on forgiveness for people who are already unrighteous. It's built on forgiveness for people who've already messed up. Furthermore, when, when you build your hope, not on grace, but you build it on your willpower, what happens is that you begin to hate the very people that you were called to love. That's what happened to me. I was so sure that my friends who were doing the things that I wasn't doing were going to get it someday. That God was going to get his revenge on their wickedness. In my heart of hearts, the truth is I couldn't wait for their bills to come due. To which Peter says this really unexpected thing. He says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. 
And I think that's an easy verse to just breeze past, but I want us to actually stop and dig in on that verse here for a minute. It is better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. Suffering for doing evil, I'm pretty sure, is exactly the thing that the psalmists, who are the authors of all the psalms, the thing they're always praying for. Suffering for doing evil is what I was waiting for as that bitter 17-year-old. Suffering for doing evil is what we think of as justice. Somebody does evil and then God, being God, loving justice, makes them pay for the evil they've done. But Peter is saying, The better suffering, the thing better than justice, is loving and forgiving those who mock you or reject you. If Jesus is our example, in other words, there's no place for bitterness. There's no place for vindictiveness. Jesus, we know, prays for God to forgive the very men who nail him to the cross. Forgive them, Father, he says, for they know not what they do. If that is the example, and here's the the point, if that's the example, if forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do is the example, the question that we're asking here, will this really work? That question ceases to make any sense. Will my righteous suffering convict sinners? Will my righteous suffering make converts? Will my righteous suffering grow the church. Those questions become meaningless. Instead, the only questions that can make sense are to ask, am I myself loved to the very ends of the earth? And if I am, can I possibly justify holding back love from others? So that's the first worry that can undermine our hope and our testimony when we face hardship and suffering. The worry is, what if it doesn't work? What if all of my suffering doesn't produce the fruit I expect it to? And the response that we see in First Peter is that it doesn't matter if it works. We live differently because we've been loved differently. We live differently because we've been loved differently, full stop. What God goes on to do in the world through our love is something that is up to Him. It's not something that's up to us. We dwell in and we live out the love that we are experiencing. We live out the love that we're experiencing. It doesn't matter if we see how it works. But there are more worries, right? I promised you guys three So what's the second one? Well, the second worry that can threaten the church is one that's rooted in our fear of the unknown. And that worry is this. What if we die before we find out if this worked? Now, that might not strike you as something you're immediately thinking about as a worry for the church, but we see this question everywhere in the early church of the first and second centuries. What if I mess up and I die before I can make it right? What if my friend dies before they have a chance to be baptized? What if we all die before Jesus comes back and and ushers us into his kingdom? We see this worry in the first century that death is this great interrupter of whatever the project is that, that God is using the church to carry out. Death is the great interrupter. 
Now, this past year, I've thought about death quite a lot. I imagine a lot of us have. In some cases, I've thought about it because of losses close to me or the possibility of losses close to me. As I've talked about, my dearest and my oldest friend, Joe, went through a traumatic liver transplant last fall, and he's now battling cancer. I'm praying for him. I'm scared for him. My family and I all had COVID-19 in March, and by a terrible turn of fate, we accidentally took the virus right to my parents in South Carolina, the, the very people that that we've been trying to keep safe. And I thought then about death, and I thought then about my guilt in death, if it were to happen. But most often, most often I've thought about death in the context of, of us. I thought about death in the context of our church. Just over a year into becoming the lead pastor, We were forced to abandon weekly meetings, forced to shut down in-person small groups, cancel volunteer events, cancel service events. I've now been lead pastor of this church for a longer time uh, through a pandemic than than I was before the pandemic started. And when all this happened at the time, I remember, I remember that I was an outlier among my pastor friends by fearing that this whole thing could go on for as long as six or eight weeks. None of us thought it could be that long. We all thought that that amount of time would be a death sentence for our churches. I remember hearing people say that. Four weeks, five weeks, we wouldn't survive it. How could we survive? How can any of us survive if the rhythms and the habits of our faith and of gathering together are broken? And then 15 months went by. 15 months. I have worried in those 15 months that revolution wasn't going to make it through. I've worried that folks would drift away, that we would collapse financially. I've worried that this day, the day of our first in-person gathering after the pandemic uh, interrupted us, that this day would come and that nobody would show up for it. And at least in some way, I couldn't shake the feeling that all of this would be on me somehow and that it would leave work unfinished. What work would it leave unfinished at Revolution if Revolution were to to die? What work would that death leave unfinished in Annapolis? What work would that leave unfinished in all of our lives? I thought about how death interrupts. It short-circuits. It kills. But Peter's answer to this fear of death is this gentle reminder that all of this just simply isn't so. It isn't so. The good news of the gospel, the announcement on the lips of every Christian in the first century, and the event that changes all the world is that Jesus, who was dead, is alive again. And the power of that announcement, which we forget sometimes, the power of that announcement is that it means death is not the end of things. That death is not in an eruption, that it's not a threat to us. The guy who 
loved us so fully and so radically that he let himself die a humiliating death for other people came back from that death. And so the question is, why not love just as fully, just as radically, with, with, with all of ourselves? What can we possibly have to lose? And what limits can we possibly put on what God can do if God can do that? Peter writes this in verses 18 through 22. He writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the Spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. That highlighted bit there in your program is strange for us, but I want to try to track with it. Peter is saying that Jesus not only makes intercession and offers forgiveness and restoration to the living, but because he is greater than death, he also offers intercession and forgiveness and restoration for the dead. He reminds his readers, of the greatest disaster in all of scriptures, the flood in the time of Noah, in which all but eight human beings are wiped off the face of the earth because of their sin. And what does Peter claim? He says that Jesus is hope even for them. Now this is a super controversial verse in church history, and I'm not going to wax theological about it today except to ask this one question. What line is uncrossable for a God who raises the dead? What wrong is unforgivable for a God whose very character is mercy and love. And if that is true about God, then what power does death have over us or over the story that God is telling in and through us? Is a dead church unresurrectable for God? Is a person unresurrectable? Is a world unresurrectable? The second worry that can sabotage a church is what if death interrupts? And the defense we have against that worry is that we are saved by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. But what about the third worry 
that can sabotage a church, right? The final worry that Peter addresses here is the most personal of them all and the most vulnerable of the three, and it's this. What if I'm not strong enough? What if the world overpowers me? And what if I let everybody down? You know how good writers tend to sit tend to save their best points for last. Well, Peter is a good writer. At first, his answer to this worry, what if I'm not strong enough, doesn't seem to track very closely to the question. He writes this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. He writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, in many ways, all of that, all that we just read, is this retread of what we've already talked about, right? We willingly take on suffering in imitation of Jesus, who willingly took on suffering for us. We imitate his attitude, which isn't one of self-righteousness or defensiveness, but one of radical love. And furthermore, we don't need to worry about whether or not those people who hate us or who love us will get away with anything that they do because we can trust that God sees, God knows, and God is just. He has everything under his control. So your job is just live differently as you were taught by Jesus and as you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live, which is the same stuff we've just spent the last 25 minutes talking about, right? Really, it's the same stuff we talked about in the whole series. So what's new here? Well, what's new comes in verse 6 because Peter goes on to undercut the very point he just made in this surprising way. He writes this in verse 6. He writes, For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. Christianity is not a purity cult where we're all clinging to some kind of born innocence that we're afraid to lose. Christianity is a forgiveness cult. Christianity is a love gospel. This whole thing is a story It's a story about an unconquerable, unstoppable, and radically generous God. That's the story. And this gospel of this unconquerable, unstoppable, radically generous God is for everyone. It reaches everywhere. There is no amount of messing up that you can do or have done that the gospel cannot redeem. There's no amount of messing up that you can do in the future that the gospel cannot redeem. And how do we know that? How do we know that? And this, I think, this is why Peter is such a good writer. 
Because in this moment, Peter knows exactly who he is. And more importantly, his readers. He knows his readers know exactly who he is. And who is Peter? Well, Peter is a living disciple of Jesus. Peter is somebody who was called by Jesus personally. Peter is a person who lived and wandered with Jesus for three years. He physically saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus feed multitudes with his own eyes. He saw him calm storms for boats that he was currently sitting in. Once Jesus helped Peter to literally walk on water. Peter was there when Jesus revealed himself in his glory on a mountaintop and rays of shining light. He was there when Jesus brought his friend Lazarus, who was four days dead, out of a tomb. Peter is a person who saw Jesus being Jesus. But he is also the same Peter. The same Peter who on the night Jesus was arrested, lied over and over again about even knowing him. He's the same Peter who skipped out on Jesus' execution altogether. He's the same Peter who fled Jerusalem and went back to his boat on the Sea of Galilee, ready to get back to fishing. He is the Peter who absolutely abandoned the God of the universe and his friend. He is Peter the dead. And the gospel came to him nonetheless. Jesus found him. Jesus forgave him. Jesus restored him. If the third worry that can sabotage the church is this personal one, what if I'm not strong enough to run the whole race? What if I crumble? What if I fail? Then the answer that Peter is giving is personal too. And that answer is, well, Jesus brings the dead back to life. We have suffered and we will continue to suffer. It may be that we will find meaning in all of this. It may be that we won't. That doesn't matter. We may not see the work that we're doing finished in our lifetimes. We may. That doesn't matter. We might stay strong and committed to our faith until our dying breath. We might lose hope and abandon it altogether. That doesn't matter. What matters is only this. The God of the universe in all his power and all his holiness loves the people he has created. He loves you. And his love is unstoppable. As we grow in the ways that we understand this, as we grow in the ways that we feel this, we are going to change. Who we are and how we see and what we do is going to be transformed. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in us and the power of the Holy Spirit over us. And do you know what I think the very best part of the church is? The thing I can't stop thinking about this week. The best part of the church 
is that we have the ability to bear witness to this change in one another. Not to hold on to purity, but to cheer each other on in growth, to share ups and downs, to marvel at what a God who raises the dead is doing in us, to wonder, to question, to delight in how that God surprises us and how he makes himself known to us. As we celebrate gathering together again today in this first week of a return to in-person services, and as we look forward to gathering together again next week and to gathering the week after and the week after, I hope what anchors our joy is our gratitude, our gratitude for simply being able to live as friends with one another, for being able to share our journeys as folks trying to figure out what it means to follow Jesus together, for sharing each other's burdens, and for the unbelievable and gracious and overwhelming love of the God we worship together, whose model of generosity gives us freedom to live radically ourselves. A God who has made us nomads intentionally so that we can live as testimonies to what it means to be his people alone together. We don't need to be afraid afraid of judgment, afraid of missing out, afraid of not being enough. Because we are loved. And so we radically love.